0: Welcome to Change the Story, Change the World. This episode's guest is artist, educator, and cultural leader Eric Booth. Like many of our guests, Eric's trajectory has not been particularly linear. Maze-like, I think, would be more accurate in that navigating a maze often means going left to go right and going back to go forward. In Eric's case, One of those early sideways moves took him from a promising career on Broadway to a fourth-grade classroom in the Bronx, helping the teacher clean human feces from the walls prior to delivering a less-than-captivating lesson on Chekhov's The Bear. Oh, boy. But in sharing this story early on in our conversation, he points to these kinds of humbling experiences as an unlikely pathway to his life's passion. Namely, activating the artistry of others in schools and communities and helping establish and build the teaching artist field around the world. Along the way, Eric has also written seven books, established and sold a successful publishing company, taught at Juilliard, Stanford, Lincoln Center, and many other educational institutions, and consulted on arts learning, teaching, and innovation across the globe. That's a lot, but... As you'll hear, Eric's resume is not what's driving our conversation. What has most interested me about Eric's work is the deeply informed and thoughtful way he engages the often amorphous and cliched landscape of human creativity and learning. What I mean by this is that when he speaks of activating the artistry of others, he's talking about fostering wellness, creating thriving communities, and changing behaviors for the better. And in doing so, he's both inspiring and makes sense. A rare thing these days. I invite you to have a listen and see if you agree. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 1, Fervor and Flow. So, let's just begin with where you are communicating from in the world i am
1: enjoying my opportunity to live uh, on the land of the esopus community of the muncie lenape nation i'm right on the edge of a nature preserve that is actually unchanged since that community lived here Whoa. so when you share your story
0: how do you describe your work in the world particularly with people who are unfamiliar with that terrain
1: well, thank you for asking because it's really rare that I share that story. <laughs> the backstory would be, in essence, I started as a as a high art guy. I was I was conditioned into the art club. I, I trained as a Shakespearean actor in a professional actor's life in New York. I was working all the time, but. It wasn't actually that enjoyable doing eight shows a week and there wasn't that much fancy art that I got to do. I was doing commercials for ice cream and (laughs) then doing a Broadway show eight times a week and stumbled into this nascent job as a teaching artist. And I immediately found it so much more artistically satisfying than the life of a New York actor that I started to lean that way. And the rest of the story would be 45 years of projects, most of which were pioneering in building this field of artists who work in schools and communities. And their main tool is activating the artistry of other people. And that challenge has remained at the forefront and continues to fascinate me. This endless depth of this capacity of artistry and what it can do when it's activated in groups, where it comes from in us and how you can nurture it in people. That has really been the driving spine of my story for the last 45 years.
0: Okay. Teaching artists. Artist, if you could take me into those first encounters you had, what was it that you actually did with people?
1: All right, I'm going to tell my first day story. My very first day as a teaching artist, Lincoln Center, the Vatican of the arts, uh, was developing this teaching artist core, and they sent me into a South Bronx elementary school, and I'd been prepared and I'd planned with the teacher, but of all myopic goals, I was to turn on this group of fourth graders in preparation for their seeing a production of Chekhov's The Bear.
0: So, for those who are not up on their Chekhov, The Bear is a late 19th century one-act Russian comedy about a young and beautiful widow in mourning and an arrogant, misogynist neighbor who spend the whole play fighting about a debt owed by her late husband and, of course, in the end, fall in love. Just the thing for fourth graders. Here's a taste of the bear. Oh no, this is a matter for the field of honor. Oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> time to choose <laughs> weapons. And just
1: because you think you have big fists and a bull neck, you think I'm afraid of you? You, you, bear. To the
0: field of honor. Nobody <laughs> insults me like that, not even a woman. Bear, 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 bear. It's about bear. time we got rid of all prejudices about only men needing to defend themselves on the field of honor. If it's a quality you want, then it's a quality you
1: get. I challenge you to a duel. <laughs> like, if there is something those kids did not need to have an experience of in their lives, it was Chekhov's the bear. So I'm all prepared. And, I, you know, this is like bringing the youth of another culture into the high arts. I believed in it. And on that day when I arrived, The teacher said to me, Eric, we're going to have to start a little late. Somebody had broken into the school overnight and smeared human shit on the walls of her classroom. So she and I cleaned off the walls of the classroom while the kids sat there and watched us. And then I began my inept education impulse that was a stupid activity to have kids make little drawings on white paper plates of their superhero and then hold it up and make a stance and make a statement. And I was inept, but what I noticed was this one little kid in the classroom, the kid that other kids had been bullying, he wanted to go first. And I I didn't want him to go first, even incompetent that I was. I knew that maybe wasn't a great idea. But anyway, he jumped right in and he put his mask on his face and he took his stance and he yelled out, THE AVENGER! And the bullies in the classroom that had been picking on him throughout the whole period actually physically recoiled and went, WHOA! And to actually see this sort of innate artistic statement coming out of this little kid, and the bullies physically reacting in a way that disrupted the power dynamics in the classroom, that actually changed the way the bullies related to the kid. I saw more power of art in that moment, and I felt it in the gut that I wanted that instead of cranking out the same show eight times a week on Broadway. So that's where it began. And then the pursuit of what else can this do? And like, how else can you activate it? And so the projects over 45 years have been no longer aimed at getting poor innocent nine year olds to prepare for a fancy show, but to actually discover the breadth of positive impact, some of which includes preparing people for experience of works of art. But the majority of which now my passion is, yeah, well, how do you foster wellness in a community? How do you create a thriving community? Mm. How do you actually change behaviors and understandings around climate crisis response? Uh, That's where my learning edge is at this point.
0: So that's a long journey from, you know, an outsider, inside a classroom where, in many ways, the people of the village probably had a very skeptical idea of who you were and what you were up to, and in essence, were given a glimpse into the actual power that you were bringing, not the power of paper plates, (laughs) but the actual power. That's extraordinary. So here's the question. You thought the path that you were going on was this, the the high art path, but how did you come into the arts at all as a kid? Where did that come from?
1: You know, I had the the privilege of parents who made the arts part of my life, and I somehow activated the, the theatrical energy early. My earliest memory is that when i was tiny my mom went back to grad school in theater at mm-hmm. columbia university and my very first memory was being allowed to go on stage in a dress rehearsal and answer the telephone for that was ringing on stage and i had a line about giving it to someone and i can vividly remember the walk onto the stage the lights the kind of heightened aliveness that i felt and so Attending theater was a regular part of my youth as were other artistic endeavors. So this kind of channel, my personal passion became acting Shakespeare and then wanted to follow that. In fact, I had a group of friends when I first came back to New York, we called ourselves the art police. We really believed our job was to defend the honor of the high arts and attack the perpetrators of mediocrity and commercialism. And that was my start. And I thought that was going to be my journey, that I was going to be the the American who rediscovered the relevant potency of Shakespeare for a new generation until I discovered the the life of a working actor, it actually isn't built around that. Yes.
0: And I have to imagine that the evangelical fervor that you brought to that has dissipated to some degree, and that it's replaced with something else. Could you talk about that transition?
1: Yeah, that notion of my kind of coming at life with fervor. Mm -hmm. uh, In ninth grade, as a part of some course i took a personality test and that turned out to be my number one personality characteristic and then in college psychology first year i took a personality test and that came out to be my number one personality characteristic so somehow i've got this like fervor as the way i enter the world mm. but it has channeled in different directions and the fervor that took over is the power of of people's innate artistry that that was where flow experience that was the most important thing in my life uh came up for me so i wanted to keep going there and i noticed how much good it started to bring into other people's lives and into the world when you could set up opportunities for others to enter into flow experience so let me
0: jump in here now to describe flow for listeners who may be wondering what we're talking about. Flow comes from the work of psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who describes it as deep involvement in an activity, creative, athletic, a work task that demands intense concentration, where what you're doing and your awareness of what you're doing are basically merged so that you're completely absorbed and unself-conscious with an overall feeling of mastery and control and a sense of
1: timelessness. And so it became a fervor for that. And it's had a sub channel of a kind of spiritual expression throughout mm. my years. I remember Maxine Green, who was my first teacher as in teaching artistry, really saying the job of a teaching artist is wide awakeness for mm. oneself and for mm. others. And that kind of uh, water table of nourishment has really fed all the work that I have done, and probably is the reason for the fervor, is I'm, I'm in love with that.
0: Well, actually, that's a beautiful thing, is to say in the world, here I am, I do a thing that I'm in love with. And it sounds like if there's threads of that evangelical
1: sense in you, it's to spread that. It is, and it feels a little evangelical sometimes. I actually did a year tour of the play St. Mark's Gospel, which is a one-man show of the Gospel of Mark, uh, King James Version of spoken on a bare stage by one actor. Uh, It was made famous by Alec McCallan, the British actor, and he hired me to do the American tour. So I did hundreds and hundreds of performances of the Gospel of Mark told as a story on a bare stage, many of them in churches and many with evangelical audiences, but also with ordinary theatrical audiences. And to actually find the religious fervor behind that story without particular attachment to the the religious extensions of that story but finding the deep resonance in a spiritual story i kind of search for that in all my work Mm. and the way in which i'm a prick is i'll leave work that doesn't have it Mm. or i will leave a project that has lost it I'm not good for the long run in just grinding it out uh, because I have the privilege to make choices Mm. to live where the aliveness is hot.
0: Part two, making stuff you care about. You just quoted yourself, and I'm going to finish out that quote about the water table. You wrote, access to the water table of humanness That the arts provide slakes the thirst that drives much of our social madness the connection through the arts adds essential nutrients to the medium in which we grow could you talk a little bit more about that
1: (laughs) yeah well first i'll mention that word the medium in which we grow that is the etymological meaning of the word culture Mm -hmm. and rather than the high culture that i thought it was when i started the discovery that culture as in agriculture and uh, agar agar in the culture dish of our 10th grade biology class that is where the opportunity for real transformative impact from the arts lives and it so obviously provides aliveness when you are working with people who are reconnecting to that water table in themselves, Mm -hmm. when they're making stuff they care about. And sometimes they make stuff they care about in arts media. And that's exciting because it's particularly eloquent. But a lot of times they're making stuff they care about in figuring out how to solve a community challenge. Mm -hmm. And there's the same freaking aliveness in their discovery of agency and creative solutions for a community challenge as there is in making something that expresses the complexity of sad music. Mm -hmm. So I'm promiscuous in where I want to be in contact with it because I just want to be in contact with it everywhere and in everything I do and in my friends and in what I read. So it's a great privilege to be able to have life provide enough money to keep you going while that's your drive. But that has been the privilege I've been able to live.
0: There's something else that that you wrote about, and it's really two things that I think are intrinsically connected. It has to do with how humans learn best or not. And in particular, what sits at the center of our work, which is experiential learning and a critical moment the invitation to play versus the invitation to follow directions and what a difference that makes. And it sounds like what you just described, which is when someone catches fire, it's not from being directed. It's from finding agency in the relationship with the work, the instrument, the tool, the toy, whatever. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. You know, I don't use the word art much anymore (laughs) because of all its associations. The phrase I tend to use is make stuff you care about. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is working with young people who tend to be compliant We have conditioned them into compliance in so many cases, or at least in major parts of their lives where we interact with them. And the antidote to too much compliance is making stuff you care about. And they're really good at doing it when we're not looking and secretly underneath their compliance. And I want to give that burning oxygen. Mm -hmm. And I want to give it oxygen and guidance to go places where self-expression is one of the channels. But there's a whole lot of shit in this world that needs some improvement. And I want to feed it in that direction too. So they can find the the sense of creative satisfaction in making something they care about that makes the world better. And yes expressing themselves in various media here i want to be the agent of artistic experience uh in fact if that's i think the real job title of teaching artists and community artists if i were going to make them take their little business cards out and scratch out whatever title they've got there we've all got that same title which is agents of artistic experience because that's the power that we all have within us the experiential potency of our own potential. So
0: one of the struggles that comes from the institutionalization and commodification of creative process in the world, particularly in the last two, 300 years, is this idea that art is an external commodity. It is a thing that some people do and most people don't. And I could really understand how the teaching artist, almost as an ambassador, could end up going one of two ways, and let me share them with you and have you reflect on them. One of them is guides to a foreign land, Hmm. and the other one is a guide that reacquaints one with a very familiar land that may have faded into the distance.
1: Yeah, beautiful. You know, the powerful arts institutions of the world love teaching artists as guides to their foreign land is like, you know, those teaching artists, we can deploy them to make kids love opera. So let's send them on out there, especially since arts are so absent in school. Let's go send out the ambassador core. And that still exists and it still has value and is to be respected. But what matters is serving to activate this potential in all people that is so diabolically squelched by our commercial culture, Mm -hmm. by our systemization of raising young people It has so little respect for that creative potential. Yeah. We'd love to let kids play and all that, but early on, we are really channeling them into compliance and effective delivery of what the culture needs. And teaching artists are this quietly radical force. I'm sometimes surprised they let us into those school buildings Mm -hmm. because when we're doing our job, we're doing something that is actually subversive to compliance Mm -hmm. and to the priorities of a school system. We've learned how to accommodate it effectively enough that it doesn't create a mess most of the time, but it is inherently subversive. And on some level, those systems actually want kids to have some aliveness. The parents care about that, the community cares about it, and we can provide a channel for it. And just one extra point, uh, as the way you were framing the commodification of the arts, one of the ways I I like to frame that is that the, the U.S. in particular and arts industries in particular love the nouns of art. I mean, America is noun central in the known universe. You know, we want the things and we sell the shows and that teaching artists are about the verbs of art the things artists do when they make those nouns and that then kind of have a different life after the noun is made and the verbs people make throughout their lives whenever they artistically engage to make something they care about. And that is the zone of the teaching artist to activate those nouns, guide guide those verbs into challenges and projects that are satisfying and impactful in the world. So teaching artists are masters of the verbs of art, while the institutions are masters of the nouns.
0: So when I worked in prisons, the first thing we would confront, particularly with a new group, was that they were there for the noun. That's all they knew. I want to make a great song. Uh, You know, I want to sell it. I want to be really famous. (laughs) And the extraordinary experience of having to break the news that we're doing verb work here (laughs) and saying this is a metaphor. There's a reason there's a seatbelt on your seat, because we're going for a long ride and it's going to have lots of terrain and there's going to be parts of it that are going to be really frustrating and disappointing, and parts of it that will be transcendent. And in the most respectful and encouraging and inviting way, our teachers all really were very good at letting people know that they were in for something that they did not anticipate, number one. And number two, that it was going to be way cooler than just getting that one song down on that guitar that you could never remember three weeks later. And the amazing thing about the culture of prison is, is that the minute people understand that you understand that it's a long haul prospect, well, they know long haul really well, you know? And so they go, okay, this is not just a room I'm going to hang out in and maybe hide my dope in the corner or get to see a female teacher. But actually, oh, this is part of the long haul. You know, we're doing time here.
1: The reason prison work is amongst the most satisfying I hear from all teaching artists who work there. And I think there's two reasons it works so well. Number one is I call the law of 80%. Eighty percent of what you teach is who you are. Mm -hmm. And if one can be one's authentic artist self, as you were just describing, there is a kind of credibility and power to radiating being an artist, seeing like an artist, making connections like an artist, that wide awakeness. That draws others into their own experience of that. That is our greatest working tool. And then the second working tool is we're really good at multiple kinds of pleasure. Mm-hmm. The you know, those guys you described, they're thinking about the pleasure when they have a best-selling song. And we can introduce the pleasures of process. Mm-hmm. And we're good at introducing them small so that they develop a taste for something they hadn't been thinking about. And it starts to build up this yearning to really go, an intrinsic motivation to pursue. And it's because of the pleasures that we've introduced and opened up so that they maybe weren't familiar pleasures, but they're they're rich and they get better when you keep keep doing more of it, and that's why it works, even in a setting as Mm non-conducive as, you know, prison structures.
0: Yeah, that's definitely my experience. Prison is daunting for anyone, and for some. So are schools. When we're daunted, we hunker down to get safe. For obvious reasons in these circumstances, the imagination just shrivels, particularly when it comes to learning new things. Art making offers a safe place to explore unfamiliar territory with an open mind, open enough to learn. (laughs) Part three, the
1: power of story. A little story about learning It's my worst moment ever as a professional. I was being interviewed on a morning talk show on television and this interviewer was a peppy young lady and she got to the end of the interview and she said Eric we have just two minutes left so could you wrap up this interview for us by giving us a very quick and clear distinction between art and entertainment I had no idea And so I'm flummoxed on live television and do what you do, which is you grab one idea and just go with it, whether it's good or not. And the one idea I grabbed was someone had once said to me, if you're ever dying on live television, just don't stop talking because then they can't turn it into sound bites that will haunt you for the rest of your life. So I had two minutes of meaningless blather pouring out of me, after which I said, never again will that happen what is the difference and what i finally came up with is this that there is no opposition between art and entertainment please god the entertainment whatever our reaction of laughing getting excited crying because it's sad happens within what we already know underneath those reactions is this confirmation of the way you think the world is and that feels great to have highly skilled people go to extraordinary lengths to confirm my sense of the world and the distinction is that art the artistic experience happens outside of what we already know that is the artistic experience this expansion of our sense of the way the world is or might be that connecting from what we know to something beyond our knowing is the artistic work. And here's getting back to your point. That's the same definition as learning, making a personal connection beyond what you know to something new. I think the words art education is a redundant phrase (laughs) i think it is the actual same set of human verbs and experiences teaching artist is the same word said twice
0: yeah i agree and you just sparked a memory the idea of building on what you know Mm. to get where you need to go it's a prevalent creative strategy that i see a lot with artists in resistance work in extremely repressive situations, introducing new ideas, new questions, challenging assumptions, using artworks, songs, poems, plays, all that, that appear so commonplace as to seem benign. It's something I see a lot with artists in resistance work in extremely repressive situations. It's really an old strategy. Taking something that's extremely familiar, a myth, a fairy tale, a folk song, a melodrama, a form that Everybody recognizes, and then hitching a ride on that story to bring new clarity or awareness or speak out loud about something everybody knows but can't say directly in public. Portuguese folk singer José Alfonso's song, Grandola Via Morena, is an example. In the early 1970s, most of Alfonso's songs were banned by the Estado Novo dictatorship for what was considered its political content. But Grandola Villa Morena's a cappella form and the simple lyrics appeared innocent enough so that censors said, "Okay, play it. Grandola Villa Morena, terra da fraternidade, But embedded were references and symbols of resistance, and it became a hidden-in-plain-sight instrument of protest and, amazingly, triggered the downfall of the dictatorship when it was broadcast on the radio to signal the start of what became known as the Carnation Revolution. Another really interesting example in a completely different context is the global social soaps movement, where issues like... Elder abuse, HIV prevention, literacy, family planning, and women's rights have been addressed in soap operas that have become extremely popular and produce real changes in awareness and behavior in South Asia and South America.
1: Well, there's a reason for the title of your podcast, Bill. Uh, The power of story is this ancient human wisdom. And when we are invited as not just storytellers, but the agents of learning through story to shape events in which story gains power. There are two ways I think of that. Number one is the teaching artist term enabling constraints. That if you use a, a known story structure, such as you were describing, and there's a reason Jung and Joseph Campbell were really big features in my 30s, learning about those elemental structures, the 14 great plot lines, the stories that everyone resonates with. Um, If you use those enabling constraints that provide an entry with that familiarity, Mm -hmm. you get to take that journey to a new place Mm -hmm. where people can then travel to Something that's outside there into the art zone where they can connect to the way the world could possibly be Mm -hmm. so it is the use of the story and it's uh, It's potency within human psyche Uh, Psychologists tell us there's two main ways human beings make meaning one is narrative alignment and the second is associative connection It's when we make a personal connection from something we know to something new we're encountering. Both of those are contained in the story. No wonder it's the tool humans have used. The other way that I find, in addition to enabling constraints, that uh, I find I use the story framework is actually to reframe a conversation that people think about, I mean, even they think about arts education, as they've got the whole story of it down, they've got opinions, they've got judgments, they've got structures that hold them in place. And if you want to have a advocacy conversation about that, you just lost. If you have the conversation within that frame, don't even bother to have it because it's not going anywhere. But can you reframe it? Can you open up a different plot line for considering something about arts education? And new possibility arises because people engage with some presentness and with some discovery and consequently some learning. So I find much of my work in finding ways to advance the things I'm passionate about is reframing what the issues Mm -hmm. are so that we can have genuine exchange and not judging.
0: I had a wonderful conversation with a a neuroscientist researcher. So not somebody who is banging a drum, saying, you know, in my work, I, I'm done beating around the bush. And I said, what do you mean? He said, look, there will come a time in the f- near future when separating a child from active, ongoing participation in art making will be considered child abuse. And it will not be an argument. It will just be the same as, you know, did you eat lunch? Did you get a good breakfast? Have you had a little exercise? You know, are you you learning to read? All of those things. He's saying everything I know from my little corner of, of the research world basically says, you do this, you get this, you don't do this, you get this and it's not a a complicated story. And speaking of stories, I would like to invite you to open up your Rolodex of available stories and pull out a card and tell a story that personifies what you're up to and where you think what you did really mattered. And you could point to it and say, yeah. That's my aspiration in the world. Do you have a story like that?
1: Wow, that's a beautiful challenge. One's coming to mind. It's small, and it's a, it comes from that notion of reframing uh, and the work of advocacy. I was a, a keynote at a fundraising event for an arts education organization in Chicago, and so they're all fancy people, and it's a fundraiser, and there was a guy in the room who was running for Senate in Illinois and he heard the arts education guy was here and he was on me so fast with all of his stuff, you know, the waste of time, the the arts are fluff and we need STEM subjects and kids need discipline to learn how to read and all that stuff. And I stood there and took it. And while he was talking, I was thinking, is there anything possible here? Is there any aliveness in the deadness I am hearing? Is there any entry point? Is there any point in standing here and going through this drill that all of us who care about these issues face all the time? And I remember I stopped him and I said, can I ask you a question? Do you think every kid in Illinois deserves a highly engaging school day? And he looked at me with this look of like, this is a trap. Like, no good can come from answering this question. But I encouraged him. I said, can you just kind of go with me for a minute here? And he thought about it and figured out he wasn't going to get in big trouble if he agreed. And he said, yes. I think there's a kind of high engagement would be a good thing to have for kids. I said, great. You and I agree. I said, do you think there might be some correlation between high engagement and increased learning results and learning better? And again, the look of maybe this is a trap, but he agreed with me that, you know, a kid who's actively involved and a kid who's learning There's probably a direct relationship. We agreed again. And then I said, do you know what the research says about what kids find engaging? And he didn't. And I was able to start to open up slight empathy for the life of a kid and his remembering what learning felt like way back when. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I can't say there was a Saul of Tarsus conversion at that cocktail party. (laughs) But I can say we had an actual conversation about human things that included stuff that was important to him, stuff that was important to me, stuff that's important for making a good community. And that was a moment when I learned that framing the truth with a genuine intent has a disruptive power that can be manifested in amazing street theater or amazing creative activism, but in a small act of just reframing an entrenched stuck positioning. And I thought, wow, that's art in small that little Mm. shift that arose in me in that advocacy opportunity, um, that is art applied to non-art purpose, but to social change. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and, and you talk at length about the empathic entry into the stories of others. You know, that ability to listen, learn and care even about somebody who is N- not in that mode with you <laughs> right. and it's interesting I undertook m- my own sort of anthropological study over time because I was so interested in the ideas of of the of the roles of host and guest mm. and you were in one of those situations two guests who were outsized one a candidate and another the keynote of speech delivery person, the expert, which is a setup from the get-go, and how does the ancient practice of guest host actually help with that? And one of the things I learned in my study is that guesting and hosting are not singular roles. They are a part of each other. So a good guest can help a host host better. Mm. And a good host can help a guest guest better. Yeah, And in many ways, that's what you were personifying. You were doing your darndest to go, okay, is there a place where this person can feel safe enough to engage in a conversation where, as a human, particularly thinking back to his own experience as a learning human, that he can be honest with you and maybe build a small
1: bridge back and forth between the two of you. Yeah. You know, it's a subtle generosity of artists to bring the quality of their listening to many different occasions. It's one thing to be able to feel empathy for a wide range of people. Uh, Artists tend to have that, but then to be able to actually hear opportunities, hear the unspoken needs of one another. That quote of Audre Lorde's always guides me, which is, we can hear one another into being. And I think artists capacity to hear deeply and beyond what's just literally presented is one of the gifts that we bring when we're in live contact with people, it's part of the law of 80%. People are shocked into awakeness when they are heard, and not just heard for the literal text, but heard for what is aching to come out of them. And good teaching artists, good artists in direct exchange can do that. And what you were describing in the host guest dynamic, It becomes the co-learning, the co-creation of events that have more meaning than their separate parts.
0: If you've reached the age of 35 and you're still doing your your gig, whatever it is, painting, drawing, acting, you've garnered an enormous amount of humility. (laughs) You know, in order to to engage, particularly in the confrontive, conflict-ridden world that we live in right now, to be able to lead with assertive humility, you know, a kind of healing power that isn't about shrinking and retreating, right? but in fact is being, once again, guest host that, that calls forth better angels. If you can do it, it doesn't always work. But that humility just seems to me to be such an important aspect of that.
1: Yeah. And the etymology of the word humility close to the ground, you know, where Mm -hmm. we stay close to the ground because we've learned that the kind of lofty fog sculpting has its uses and its places, but it's not the kind of impact that that actually makes for change. The makes for change is a much more mundane intimacy. As the Zennies say, it's intimacy with the 10,000 things. It's intimacy with the little things that are going on in people. Maybe the favorite workshop I ever got to lead was spending one week with a group of teachers and their goal was to write one sentence. And we spent the whole week looking at what sentences can do and like looking at other sentences people had written and looking at all the stuff we wanted to bring to the sentence and how do you have the form of the sentence model the meaning of the sentence. It was some of the most satisfying artistic work I'd ever done, but you tell somebody about it and it's a pretty humble ambition for a week of your life. (laughs)
0: Yes, and a very Zen moment, for sure. Part 4, El Sistema. So, I'm going to switch channels here slightly to your work with El Sistema and how that personifies some of what we've been talking about here. I think when people envision a teaching artist, they see an artist in a classroom with students in a school or a community center teaching art or music or theater, usually as an adjunct to their, quote, normal education. And here you have a classical music education program started by a music educator, José Antonio Abreu, in a Caracas parking garage that over three decades grew to include over a million students across Venezuela in a process that's not only rigorous and demanding musically, but involves deep learning and fomenting significant social change on the ground in mostly poor
1: communities, all through the power of music making.
0: Could you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. When I first went to Venezuela, I guess it was 15 years ago, uh, On a, I was giving myself a sabbatical, which is a fancy term for a freelancer, not taking gigs for a while so that you can recover your sense of purpose. And on this, I had some learning adventures taught in rural Tanzania. And one of them was I went to Venezuela because I'd heard about this thing called El Sistema and I went as a skeptic. It sounded a little too like a cult. There was a little bit too much you know, Feet of the Saint about Jose Antonio Breu. So I went, not, uh, not open. And in the first 10 minutes of my experience in the first Nucleo, the learning center I went to, I recognized I was seeing an arts education accomplishment of an order so far beyond anything I had ever imagined that I was reoriented toward what's possible in the world. That you could have a million young people, mostly kids in economic need, but not entirely, pouring everything they had into collective music making to accomplish beauty more powerfully than they ever had before and see it have impact on the trajectory of their lives. So this made me believe that Music for Social Change was not some effortful uh, machination of a marketing genius in a Western country, but it was an explosion of human passion in a Latin America country that was spreading through Latin America. And I wanted to be a part of spreading it beyond Latin America and have been for 15 years discovering, again, in a humbling way, how very much harder it is to create those environments without a surrounding culture that holds it in a particular way. Mm -hmm. So lots of effort involved, but a lot of hopefulness That, in fact, the the sheer potency of humans making beauty together because it's the most important thing in the world for them actually inverts Maslow's pyramid. Mm -hmm. That, in fact, those kids there and in all the other continents I've seen this work, the kids of hard poverty are actually self-actualizing before they're finding safety and enough food. And that finding self-actualization is accelerating their process to achieve survival needs.
0: And so given the turmoil of the environment you're talking about, that's 15 years ago, a lot of things have happened in that country, for sure. There have been some complications, with the program and some controversy, and I know that it's spread around the world and there's different versions of it. How does it fare today in
1: Venezuela and beyond? To be honest, I would say the honeymoon period of music for social change programs that exploded around the world, now in 68 countries, something like that, the explosion has somewhat plateaued Mm -hmm. As they've encountered financial sustainability issues and where they've really struggled are teachers who come out of a conservatory pipeline that can deliver musical results but don't really know how to open wider to a holistic development of the young people in that ensemble so I would say it's completed its first phase it's in a transition toward discovering its next phase. And one of the projects I'm most excited about in my own work is an organization based in Europe called the Academy for Impact Through Music that has had the opportunity to rethink the pedagogy that people who know from the conservatory pipeline how to get musical results open up the pedagogy so they can have effective continual development in social results as well so i'm a little hopeful that over the next 10 years there is a new chapter of music for social change around the world uh, it's already having remarkable if quiet results in almost every program around the world uh, high school graduation rates go from modest numbers to hundred uh, percent kids are not just becoming musicians as a result Mm -hmm. of this work. They're becoming self-actualized in a way. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful, but I would say the field after its global explosion is looking to find its next footing. And that, but he has
0: followed these kinds of things. It's a natural arc as the cycle of creation and dissipation and creation and dissipation. So here's a provocative question. What are you excited about right now most? What's sparking you?
1: I'll tell you. It's it's in the ITAC, the International Teaching Artist Collaborative, which started modestly 10 years ago with a conference that I and a colleague, Maret Ulvan, started in Norway. Every two years, we had this conference where people who kind of thought of themselves as teaching artists from around the world came together. We'd have people from 25, 26 countries. And since 2018, we, we got enough money to hire a full-time staff person, and it started to grow. And the excitement of an international conversation where the diversity of perspectives is not just respected, but actually celebrated as intoxicant to find language that's shared across cultures and to connect in work across cultures. And the most exciting piece of that is two years ago, we launched an initiative of impact on climate crisis response and we've been able to commission teaching artists community projects that go beyond what the arts normally get to do regarding the climate we're not just having communities make artworks about environmental themes or we're not just translating scientific information into more compelling expression we're actually at the ground level through creative making stuff, changing the way people understand climate, changing their sense of agency to do something about it, and they're starting to move on local policy and environmental law as a result of it. So to see the full muscularization of teaching artistry around this most prominent crisis of our time It's so exciting. It's going to carry me right through the net zero 2050 era when I croak. So I think it's it's a pretty good ride ahead.
0: So a good ride sounds like a good place to wrap it up here. I'll finish with a regular final question. So tell me three creative works that you've encountered
1: that have turned you on. All right. The first one that comes to mind, EMC Arts was working in South Dallas on food desert issues in this economically struggling community. And they engaged a series of experiments with community members on creatively how might they address the fact that supermarkets can't make any money here and that economic forces are keeping shitty food in front of these people. And through a series of creative experiments, they stumbled into food festivals led by grannies, by the abuelas of the communities that were so popular in terms of multi-generational exploration of ethnic foods and traditions and how you make them that after several rounds of these food festivals, uh, food co-ops started to spontaneously Mm. pop up in the neighborhood in order to provide the food so that people could make the food, the abuelas were teaching them. And you began to have an economic solution to an intractable uh, social problem that rose up from the sheer human delight of intergenerational celebration around food. And that particular project uh, resonates for me as what's possible for the arts to serve as mm-hmm. a true catalyst for solutions mm-hmm. in real world ways using Mm -hmm. what we knew creatively in terms of, uh, prompting experimentation and guiding experimentation, but letting the experimentation be the power, the transformative power. So that's a beauty. A couple of others. uh, I have been very influenced by Elaine Scarry wrote Mm -hmm. about beauty. And her philosophical perspectives on what beauty is and what it does in the world had a gigantic influence on me. Uh, she writes about the muscularity of beauty and about the, the smallness of beauty, like what it does, this, this human thing that when you make something beautiful, even if it's just a sentence or a story, it begets more beauty (laughs) and watching that kind of human thing work around the world noticing it in myself and in people i work with uh that itself has had a, a really long lasting impulse on me uh that i read from years and years ago and then the one other thing it's not exactly something I I can share, but it's had a gigantic influence on me, which is every year I take a retreat in the wilderness. I go to a, a wilderness place that is so remote. It's like I have to hike there and it's miles of bushwhacking. So I won't see any humans. And I spend a week inside a hundred foot circle with no books, no paper, Nothing that can distract me from doing nothing for a week in nature every year. And I've done this for some 20-something years in a row. And that is the center of my year. That listening to the rhythms of nature and getting out of my own thinking patterns and productivity impulses, that's where the ideas about the work I want to bring into the world come clear and that's where the kind of one or two truths that will drive those ideas come into my gut and so I guess the the answer to your question is the recognition of the importance of finding a really quiet place on on a regular basis in one's professional life so that the dust can settle and the bigger truths can be become freshly visible to us.
0: So what really strikes me from that little story and thinking about you in your circle out there in the woods is two assumptions and one permission. One assumption is there's something there to rise up. Yeah. Right. Uh, which is an amazing gift because not everybody assumes that if they hang out in the woods by themselves, anything's going to happen. And the other assumption is that it will be connected to what you go back to. Yeah. The last one is the permission, which is the humility of knowing you don't always know what wisdom is available to you until you make space for it and listen. You recognize that you're not at the center of a universe of your own making, and you give yourself permission to learn from it, to encounter the flow, which can be both celebratory and hard.
1: For one of my books I did, I interviewed 50 people that I knew about where creativity was in their lives, and every one of them identified some place in their lives when they slipped into flow, like there's a certain set of circumstances or occasions they remember, and it has this gigantically disproportionate impact on their day and their week and their month. And it's so if we could be guides toward flow experience more than anything else, I think we'd be healing the world.
0: I agree. I totally agree. Eric,
1: thank you for flowing along here today. And thank you for creating a platform where earnest... Aspirations like this can be shared with the community
0: And again, thanks to our listeners And a reminder, please Check out our collections of past episodes That have been organized by subject and arts discipline And other ways on our website At www.artandcommunity.com Under the podcast drop-down Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape blossom up regularly from the brilliant musical garden tended by Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org and our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of Uke 235. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. And one last note. This episode has been 100% Human.